following this manual is considered standard practice, even if some of the things in the manual are actually incredibly dangerous for pedestrians or bicyclists. We really should be designing cities away from cars or, or designing cities that are built around walking and biking. A really great mayor is worth their weight in gold, but in the end, it's up to us. If we want something, we can make it happen collectively. I am talking to Andy Singer, who is a cartoonist from way back of No Exit and uh, author of Why We Drive. I was trying to describe you and I came up with Streets Cartoonist. But, <laughs> I'm just uh, a cartoonist who's interested, who, who, I mean, I started out, if you're a cartoonist, you're not going to make much money in life. And thus, um, you can't necessarily afford a car, um, you know, and you have to live in cheaper areas or, you know, that, that was originally how I lived. And so I got around by bike. And then um, I think it was sort of through that, I think whenever you get around your city by bike or by walking, it's sort of like being unplugged from the matrix and you, mm -hmm. you suddenly realize how insanely car oriented your city or town is. And, um, and then I got interested in bicycle and pedestrian activism. And I kind of just do that as a hobby. And now you're in St. Paul. Yeah. I've lived here for 20 years or so. My wife got a job here. I'm working at a university. Did you found the St. Paul bicycle coalition? I was part of a group of people that did. Yeah, part of a group of people that did. We used to have a city um, bicycle advisory board that was sort of sanctioned by the city. And um, for various reasons, they disbanded that in, uh, I think, 2009 or 2010. And um, a bunch of people thought, oh, we really should have some sort of city advocacy group just for bikes. Um, and so we, we kind of made one. Do they have, like here they have the California Bike Coalition, then they have all of the local ones and the local ones have partners too. And is it like that in Minnesota? It's like that in Minnesota. We're in theory, we're a chapter of Bike MN, which is mm -hmm. the statewide group. And what do you all do? We have been, or at least for the last bunch of years, have just been going to public meetings, initially trying to get the city to adopt a detailed bicycle and pedestrian plan, which they did and passed in um in 2015. And then with the bike plan passed, um, when a street comes up for repaving or reconstruction, um, we go to the public meetings uh, or try to turn out people to the public meetings and try to turn out emails and um, comments and phone calls and stuff in favor of uh, putting the promised bikeway, uh, implementing it on the new street. So how's that been going? It's been going great. I mean, ever since we had, we used to lose, 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 um, not get much of anything. And then after we got the bike plan passed, which was uh, March of uh, 2015, almost immediately that fall, I believe we got um, these pretty awesome lanes that are a half block from my house um, on Cleveland Avenue, where they had to remove over two miles of parking from one wow. side of the street. Wow! And it was this, you know, massive uh, pitched battle, political battle, but it, we won it. And oh. then ever since that, um, uh, all we do is win. We've been winning a lot of stuff. So that's really nice. Um, the latest thing last fall was um, there is a city owned highway called Aid Mill Road, which was originally envisioned as a connector freeway between two interstate highways. 
and it's sort of um, laid in no man's land um, and not been connected on the north end for a long time and they keep threatening to connect it and make it into this big highway but um, uh, sort of public opposition and lack of money has stopped it and we've also always wanted to have a bikeway on it and downsize it from four lanes to two lanes or um, and we we succeeded in getting rid of one highway lane and converting it to a bicycle and pedestrian path last spring. And then last fall they built it. And so now you can Amazing. bike on it. And so that's well, pretty cool. Well, you're living... the only freeway lane removal that I know of in the state of Minnesota. Wow. So, but it's along a freeway then you got, yeah, like... it's along a highway. Oh. One side of it, it's um, it's an old um, Creek corridor, a Creek bed. Um, it, it was originally called aid mill Creek and uh, a railroad line runs up it um, because railroad lines always look for river or creek beds to get up to grade. Um, you know, it's coming up from the river, from the Mississippi River, it comes up to the bluff and it was a way for trains to get up there. And then eventually they built a highway along it also. It's still on one side has railroad tracks and some, a little bit of woods in it. And it could potentially be a really beautiful linear park if they downsize the roadway to two lanes and made it just like a street. Um, and there's still a chance of that happening at some point in the future. But it, even right at the moment, it's for certain areas, it's a really good place if you want to um, walk a dog or um, get escape by bike. Um, at the north end, you're in a sort of neighborhood that's surrounded by highways and big boulevards. So if you want to get out of that, it's a, it's a great way to get out of it. And then eventually we hope that it's going to connect. I don't know if you've ever been to the Twin Cities, but our, our biggest thing here is um, something called the Midtown Greenway. And it's a old freight railroad right of way that went across South Minneapolis. And it goes in cuts like trenches um, where the streets go overhead of it. And it was built so that trains wouldn't interrupt street traffic. And the, the rail traffic eventually fizzed out and died. Um, and the city took it over and made it into this bike highway. Um, and uh, we would like to extend that greenway over the Mississippi on a railroad bridge and then down into St. Paul. And this one section of Aid Mill Road hopefully will connect to that um, extension if it ever happens. Well, you guys are kicking ass over there. There's still big holes or problems. Min Minneapolis has really kicked ass. Um, St. Paul's because it has less money and um, whatever is slower. But but in the last couple of years, we've really made a lot of headway. Can we share your upcoming cartoon about the MUTCD? Sure, if I draw it, I gotta, I do have to draw something about it. I mean, it really is kind of like the Bible or <laughs> warding off evil spirits for traffic engineers. I'm gonna set up like what the MUTCD is. Okay, I'm gonna try to do that. I could read you from the... FHWA definition of the MUTCD, <laughs> which says, quote, the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices for Streets and Highways, or MUTCD, defines the standards used by road managers nationwide to install and maintain traffic control devices in all public streets, highways, bikeways, and private roads open to public travel. It's a compilation of national standards for all traffic control devices, including road markings, highway signs, and traffic signals. In starting in 2009, states were required to adopt the MUTCD as their legal state standard. And um, that 
that fact that it becomes also a part incorporated into state uh, highway manuals and city manuals um, means that uh, it gives it a, a certain power. And then the other power that it has is it, if engineers and cities and states follow it, it protects them from liability um, because courts mm -hmm. have determined that a state agencies, as long as they don't do anything that's arbitrary or capricious, um, they are insulated from liability. And so following this manual is considered standard practice, even if some of the things in the manual are actually incredibly dangerous for, um, for pedestrians or bicyclists. Like what? Um, you, like signal warrants. I mean, I was thinking of the various ways that I've encountered it over time. So for example, there are warrants, uh, meaning how many pedestrians, bicyclists, or even cars that you have to have in order to get a traffic signal um, or a four-way stop or various types of treatments that would allow you to cross a street. Um, and often those warrants are set very high. So um, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation where you have pedestrians who are getting hit at some unsignalized intersection trying to cross a four lane road. Um, but, and so they don't cross there, but if there was a signal there, a lot of people would cross there. Um, and so the, the DOT or the public works department will say, oh, well, we don't have enough people crossing to warrant putting a signal at this intersection. And um, in some cases that can reflect the manual. Um, another example would be protecting pedestrians and cyclists. So a lot of times public works departments in cities or, or um, in towns will put pedestrian refuge islands or bump outs um, to protect the pedestrian who's crossing the street or they'll protect a bikeway. Often they'll just protect it with a curb, you know, a low line concrete curb or if they're just making a temporary one, they'll protect it with plastic poles. And we've all seen where like a car will mow down all those plastic poles or mow down all that mm -hmm. signage. And if a pedestrian or a cyclist had actually been there, they'd be dead. Mm -hmm. um, and so they don't really physically or psychologically protect people. And it would be better if they used concrete bollards or what are called bunkers um, or Jersey barriers in New York and a few cities, they will use uh, Jersey barriers to protect bikeways. And like those will actually deter a car. <laughs> um, but the, the manual will require sometimes that if they do that, they have to put cushioning devices for the car on the yeah. concrete bunker um, because the, the, the sidewalk or these things are viewed um, in some places as what are called auto recovery zones. <laughs> and, and they're just very automobile oriented, the entire sort of lens of the... Of well, the, uh, the sidewalk, can you explain that? The sidewalk is an automobile recovery zone? Oh, that was a classic thing which got passed around like um, uh, bike circles. But in, I believe, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, a while back, somebody wanted to, uh, many years ago, wanted to put large planters along the sidewalk to protect the sidewalk from errant vehicles. Um, if, you, if you Google building hit by car in Los Angeles or any city, you will find that every day buildings are being hit by cars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and... Um, and sidewalks, yeah. you know, cars are going up onto sidewalks, hitting bus stops, hitting all, all kinds of things. People have wanted to put uh, planters or bollards or various things along curbs to protect sidewalk areas or places where there are a lot of pedestrians. In one case, the Atlanta 
Public Works Department or DOT said, no, you can't do this because we view this sidewalk as an auto recovery zone, meaning an area where vehicles can uh, regain control if they lose control. Um, wow. And that, that makes some sense. They have these rules it, and it makes sense on a, an 85 mile an hour highway to not put large stationary objects next to the highway, but in an urban area where you really shouldn't be going faster than 30 miles an hour, uh, it mm. makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. And the, they can say there aren't enough people on bikes to warrant a bike lane somewhere because there's no way to safely ride. Right. And the MUTCD requires that municipalities and states um, do projections or calculate projections in the growth of traffic and factor that into street and road designs, but they don't have the same requirement for pedestrians and cyclists. So they're not required to uh, project and say, well, maybe there'll be more pedestrians wanting to cross this spot or use this. Um, and so again, it's, it's very automobile and highway oriented and a, and a local example of where that's going on is they're building, there used to be a huge uh, piece of land that was a Ford plant where they manufactured Ford Ranger pickup trucks and Ford um, got rid of it uh, 10 years ago or something. And now they're building a huge uh, um, residential housing uh, development and retail development on this site. So they're gonna add you know, thousands of people to this, this site. And they're worried about what that's gonna do for cars and traffic and parking. But no one's asking like how many more people are gonna to wanna to recreate on these uh, mm -hmm. or use the existing bike infrastructure along Mississippi River Boulevard. Mm -hmm. And I think that if they really thought about that, um, a lot more people are gonna to wanna to use it. And it's already very tight and constricted in their conflicts between pedestrians and cyclists because it's a shared use path. Um, and they, they really need to widen it to allow, you know, separated bike and pedestrian um, access. But mm -hmm. they're, they're not even required to project that or think about it, um, whereas they are required to, to project or think about cars. Are like people who design, what do you call them? Traffic engineers? Yeah. Urban plan? Yeah, traffic are engineers they... and, and planners. They're, you know, both are involved in the street design process. I would have thought that they're ahead of the general public and being like, I guess you'd call it enlightened or progressive about road use. Some, sometimes, but sometimes not. It really depends maybe where you are or in New York City or certain places that's true. Here, there are some who are, but there are some who are very much in an automobile mode, you know, or like, you know, see the world through a car windshield. I mean, there's a guy who works for our county, for Ramsey County, who's a young guy. I mean, he hasn't been out of, um, you know, graduate school that long, probably. And he was redesigning an intersection um, where there's a, a Trader Joe's and um, it's, it's a, you know, a, a solidly residential corner. Um, and they wanted to widen it. And there was sort of a public outcry about that, which stopped it, stopped them from widening it. But um, at one point we asked him, like, have you ever walked through it? And he's like, nah, <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he's like, oh, I've driven through it once. <laughs> wow, um, yeah. And and other sort of encounters I've had with some of them, um, you know, there are some who are very want to try to do things and, um, you know, feel limited either by government or the public or, um, by manuals or regulations, um, but then there are other people who um, they don't see any problem with the manual or, or don't see any problem with orienting things towards automobiles. 
we've had, you know, Charles Marone of Strong Towns, uh, him and a guy named Don Kostelek uh, about uh, busting engineering myths. And um, I mean, you talk about in, in Why We Drive about how these agencies are basically, I mean, regardless of what anybody who works for them thinks, their only mission in life is to take money and make roads and get more money and make more roads. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it really depends. And especially many states, your state gas tax is dedicated to highways. So there's always a lot of money for roadways and there's no similar dedicated funding source for bike or pedestrian infrastructure or for public transit. Um, and so they tend to find roadway solutions for problems just because they know they're going to get funded. And also, I mean, it's not, it's, if you work for a big institution, whether it's a public university or whatever it is, you don't get to be head of that institution unless you're good at raising money for it and cranking out stuff for it and mm -hmm. providing jobs for it. And it just sort of starts to move on autopilot. Yeah. And then the private sector has this too, right? In the form of corporations or in the form of, you know, right. business things that make a product that could be a horribly destructive product, but, you know, they're just kind of on autopilot trying to please shareholders um, and make profit margins. And, you know, regardless of who's at the helm or, you know, who's working at the thing, they're going to keep trying to make and sell more products. It's just kind of the nature of big organizations, um, particularly ones that have uh, funding sources or, or, you know, dedicated revenue sources. So now what do you think of Pete Buttigieg? Uh, it's too early to tell, you know, I'm hopeful that he actually has some experience having been a city mayor, although I have also visited South Bend, Indiana, and I would not call South Bend, Indiana, um, you know, a dense uh, pedestrian or bike friendly yeah. place necessarily. I haven't been there for many years, but um, uh, my wife went to school at Notre Dame. So I, I don't know how much experience he has. I would feel much more confident with someone who had been the mayor of a large city. I really would have liked to see uh, Joe Biden appoint Jeanette City Khan as mm. transportation mm. commissioner because she ran a city of 8 million people and was very intimately aware of uh, all of these issues um, in terms of how, how the agencies operate, in terms of um, uh, how people get around, um, et cetera, et cetera. But hopefully we'll see, uh, you know, hopefully Buttigieg will be all right. I like some of the things, I mean, I guess I've learned in my own state, we've had, um, I forget the, the first guy's name, but Sorrell was our um, transportation commissioner. You always have a person in the agency who's the um, political appointee who runs or is head, heads the agencies. Uh, and then you have the career staff and people under that person. And we've had people in Minnesota who talk a great game, um, but uh, nothing seems to change in the agency. <laughs> you know, they they were in office, you know, as uh, MinDOT chair or whatever for four years or eight years or something. And then, but the agency still tries to do the same things now as it did when I got here. They came in wanting to widen Interstate 94 between um, St. Paul and Minneapolis and um, they're still thinking about it. You know, I don't, I don't think they'll be able to do it because there's so much opposition, but just the fact that they're even thinking about it blows my mind. And that's after all these people who talked a great game were appointed as heads of the agency. I think if they had their druthers and there was no public opposition, they would probably still, they would probably do it. I guess my point is that, you know, at the state level, there's still 
um, agencies trying to build their way out of congestion by adding more lanes or, or whatever. And even though they have governors have put in political appointees to in theory run those agencies who talk a great game and talk about pedestrians and bicycles and getting away from we can't build our way out of congestion and, um, and yet they're still trying to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, with Buttigieg, I'll, I'll see actions will speak louder than words. I'm grateful that he's saying nice things about, you know, uh, freeway teardowns potentially or all sorts of other things. But like, um, we'll see what happens in the next four years if it actually um, we get some change or what, you know. Mm -hmm. I will say the federal government, I think, is ahead of the states um, in that you can use federal money for for transit or for bike pad or for other things. Whereas in many states, uh, I'm not sure about California, but I, in many states you can't. The toll revenues and gas tax dollars are constitutionally dedicated to highways. Mm -hmm. You talked in our last episode about mayors and how important they are. So you must have a good one. Yeah, we do have a good mayor. Um, Melvin Carter, our current mayor um, is good on uh, bicycle and pedestrian stuff. And also, I mean, part of that is he is close friends with a guy named Russ Stark, who was uh, a former city council president, um, but who is very into new urbanism and has a lot of experience. He sat on the transportation advisory board of the Met Council, which is our metropolitan planning organization. And like, he was a, a former president of the bicycle advisory board when we had one. Um, and so I think he... Um, shapes a lot of the mayor's policies when it comes to bicycle and pedestrian stuff. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, uh, that that's helped a lot. You live in kind of a progressive part of the world. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would, I'd say, you know, in most states, every state, you know, if you look at those maps that show voter, uh, how, how people voted by county, and the first thing you notice is that all the cities are blue and then all mm. of the exurban and rural areas are red. And I think, you know, whether your state is progressive or not comes down to whether how what percentage of its population lives in cities. Yeah. Um, and so Minnesota, the Twin Cities and Duluth and Rochester are probably our biggest sort of um, urban centers and they they have a lot of people. And so, um, yeah, the cities are, are definitely progressive and the state is by a thin margin of uh, votes Democrat or votes for um, more progressive stuff than say, um, you know, uh, Alabama or Mississippi or something where, um, again, I would, I would venture that, oh, and it like Mobile, Alabama or Birmingham are probably, you know, progressive voting, but they don't, the majority of that state's population is not in the cities, you know, it's in exurban areas or, uh, suburban areas. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, no, uh, the Twin Cities are, are definitely progressive. It's just cold. <laughs> in the oh, I've heard now. about that lately. Now it's like, it can get to 70 below or something? Uh, not that bad for a while, but 20 below is not uncommon. Well, I heard it from a stand-up comic, so it's not a reliable, obviously. <laughs> That's the only place you can get information anymore. <laughs> John Stewart used to like complain about that. That's kind of your line, isn't it? Like alternate news? As a cartoonist, um, when I was most widely published, my market was uh, what are called alternative news weeklies. Um, so down in the LA area, 
uh, I'm trying to think if I ever ran it. I ran in San Diego City Beat, which was um, an alt weekly in San Diego and um, Random Links News. Um, I did run at one point in some paper in LA, but I can't even remember the Ventura something, Ventura something. Um, but a lot of those papers are gone. They were completely reliant on event and bar and restaurant advertising. And with COVID, all that dried up and suddenly they had no revenue source and a lot of them went bust. Um, and before that, they were relying on classified advertising and Craigslist wiped all that out. Mm -hmm. um, and then they were relying on uh, like porn ads and like a uh, call, you know, uh, whatever porn industry ads, like in the back of a lot of these papers, like the Village Voice and San Francisco Bay Guardian and stuff, you'd see all these ads for like phone sex and stuff like that. And all that crap uh, went online, you know, over the last 15 years or whatever. So that revenue source disappeared. And basically they just have no more revenue source to like do journalism. Um, and Google AdWords kind of took away the rest of the, the, the big like full page and half page ads. Um, so there's still a few papers. I'm not sure what's still down in the LA area, but um, a lot of them are gone. I don't feel like we have anything. I mean, we yeah, used to yeah. we used to have LA Weekly. I don't think I haven't seen any. Yeah, it may be gone. Maybe gone. I do covers for a a um, French ecology magazine called La Decroissance, and um, various other stuff. Until recently, uh, uh, every other week thing for a Chinese news weekly called New Weekly which hopefully I will keep that job. Although I said something about the Chinese government uh, yesterday to no. a reporter in uh, um, Hong Kong who called me about something and now I regret it because it's, <laughs> I don't regret it, but it's, it's now part of a headline. Um, it's a headline? Oh uh, yeah. For some, you know, small, something called the Hong Kong free press. Um, so uh, we'll see whether I still have my job at new weekly anymore. <laughs> Um, well, they were then not fans of the Chinese government or they were? I think they're not fans of, I think they were. Um, I think that the Chinese government has come into Hong Kong, as we all know, and like, um, you know, sacked representative de democratic government in the city. And apparently they are also going into school curricula and changing the school curricula and people are pissed about that. And somebody um, didn't like a new textbook that has been introduced and noticed that uh, someone took one of my cartoons and like ripped it off in the schools in this textbook. Um, and so this woman sent, you know, contacted me yesterday and like, do you think this is a copyright infringement? <laughs> you know, I'm like, what do you think about this? And, um, and I, and I commented about it. I'm forgetting that I'm talking to journalists. <laughs> But but I told her what I thought, you know, and um, and so uh, we'll see. It it got printed as you know, car cartoonist outraged at Chinese government, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That that kind of puts you in some cool company. I don't know. Maybe or put makes me unemployed. We'll find out. Well, let's get back to the MUTCD. So you're going to draw this cartoon about the MUTCD and it's going to be some, it's going to be like a, the MUTC is the Bible. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think so. Yeah. 
you know, or these high state, um, these highway manuals, and particularly the MUTCD, because it's the Uber manual of all manuals. Well, don't you think with uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, I mean, and, and, you know, maybe I shouldn't say like, like he's in charge of everything. I mean, but the new administration and the new transportation department and the way things are going and the, just the tone from the top right now that, you know, whatever we're asking for, we're going to get in there. Uh, maybe, but you never know. You just never know. Like, I mean, the thing is the people who are actually making the decisions on the manual revision are probably career civil servants who work for the FHWA. And it's probably ultimately very few people. Um, the, the decision-making process of what makes it in or out of there is not like hyper-transparent um, to my knowledge. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, are th those people are not affected by elections or, you know, who's, they're, they're just there. Um, and so maybe, uh, and then the fact that, you know, I think if, if Buttigieg or, or various political appointees have had a lot of experience with dealing with agencies and dealing with this manual, um, then they would be more hands-on or aggressive about fixing it. And, you know, I'm not sure if they will be. I mean, I think it's helpful that America Walks and um, various other organizations are paying attention, but um, there are actually a lot of organizations that aren't, that, that really should. And like this manual has not been updated since 2012. So that's nine years ago. Um, so it's, it's not, it doesn't get revised very often. Um, and, and there's a public comment period that we're in right now till May. That's 15th. right. That runs until, runs until May 15th. Are so you we're kind of, we're running out of time. Are, are you, <laughs> what's the call to action here? Who do, I guess America America walks. America walks has a has a form letter on its um, on its website, which I was gonna look up the I was gonna look it up for you, but um, I'll see if I can find it as we're talking. I mean, I had it in my in my notes. Here it is. I mean, no wait, that's not it. Yes, it is. Well, you just go on America walks and you. Yeah, if you okay. go on their website, um, if you go on their website, you'll you'll find it. But um, are they the only ones pushing for this? Uh, what know, about like I wrote to the League of American Cyclists, and they said they were going to comment, um, uh, and this was several days ago. But I'm not seeing something, or I, as of a few days ago, I didn't see anything. Um, let's see, current actions. Here it is on America Walks. Demand safer streets. Here it is. It's uh, it's on um. If you go to americawalks.org, um, you'll see actions. Take action is one of the, um, the, the choices in the bar at the top of their page. And if you go on take action to current actions, it will take you to uh, their current actions page. And they have a demanding safer streets and uh, rewriting the MUTCD is right at the top of that. Well, it sounds very important yeah i mean if you put in there that they have to have a bike lane on every new you know every road that's repaved they would have to do it uh potentially no. i mean you know there um i'm not sure how far reaching changes can be um but for example the ada act required that 
you had to have ADA compliant curbs and all sorts of things on, um, although that was, I believe, an act of Congress, um, but, uh, and which many viewed as unfunded mandate, um, but uh, you certainly, I think it's more about when you do build a bike facility, um, how, how is it going to be? If you do put in a crosswalk or a pedestrian crossing, how is it going to be? Um, how, how many pedestrian crossings are you required to have per mile or per, you know, whatever? What are the, um, what are the conditions under which you can get a traffic signal? Um, you know, those kind of things. Um, but they, if you're involved in this stuff all the time, they, they make a difference. Um, and I went to this America Walks online webinar earlier this week, and they had engineers from around the country um, presenting different aspects of the MUTCD and, and what issues they have with it or what they'd like to see fixed about it. And one guy was talking about ways in which it ends up costing cities money. Um, and one example is they require something called, if, if you want to lower the speed limits on your city streets to 25 miles an hour, or 30 miles an hour, um, in many cases, if those are state or um, county highways, um, you are required to do something called an 85th percentile study. Yeah. Where you go out and like measure and see what speed cars are actually driving. And then you have to set speed limits at 85% of that. Um, and that comes from the MUTCD and uh, that costs, that costs people money to go out and do that. Um, you know, versus just saying, no, we're going to, we're going to say it's 25 miles an hour or whatever it is that we're going to set it at. Um, or, or he gave a bunch of other examples of, of, um, where, uh, they have to transfer control of a road to the city um, because the city has more leeway about what it can do than the county or the state does um, because of this manual. Um, so my, my hope is actually that there are enough engineers out there who will want to make changes to it that um, there will, you know, some changes will get made, but we'll see. What are the arguments against giving over some of the space for cars to uh, walking and biking? Uh, that it'll be traffic Armageddon. You know, that if we if we turn over this lane, if we convert this lane to a you know, multi-use path, it'll be traffic Armageddon, you know, like, and they don't realize that a large amount of traffic is discretionary, meaning people, um, you know, have options or, or choosing to go get donuts uh, during rush hour or, um, you know, choose to do things um, to some degree uh, until a certain level of traffic congestion is reached. Um, in which case they will stop doing whatever that is. Um, and that, you know, you can't um, build your way out of congestion. Uh, that congestion is just going to become a reality of, of cities um, that you have to accept and you have to like not cave into it, but give people alternatives to driving. I mean, yeah, people who want to make room for bikes and people on, on streets are saying, in effect, you know, let's make it harder to drive. And um, there are, of course, people who find that to be kind of shocking. I mean, I approach it from not necessarily, I want to make it harder to drive, but I 
I want this space for people to safely be able to get somewhere by bike or walking. You know, I consider the right to cross a street to be a human right. Um, and I think that um, when you're so afraid of traffic congestion or something that you're not going to grant people that human right, then I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna complain about it. You know. Um, it's, it's not that I want to make your life more difficult to drive. It's that, you know, I want to be able to cross the street and not die. <laughs> you know, or, or I want to be able to bike to my destination to downtown St. Paul. Um, and the only way to do that, because we live in an urban area and there's not a lot of space left to like build things is, is I'm going to need to take a lane of your a roadway away um, to put, you know, a bike facility on. Mm -hmm. um, in certain situations, you know. And so have you had talks with people who, who can't see your, your way of seeing and how do they go? All the, oh, not, not always great. You know, most of the time, not great, but I mean, I go to public meetings all the time, which on your last show, you had a bunch of people who were also veterans of public meetings. Um, Don, and uh, I forget the, uh, the woman's name. Um, Sophie. So, and, yeah. Oh, Felicia uh, and Joe Linton here. In, yeah. And, you know, if you go to public meetings, you're going to hear these people all the time. Um, and uh, you can try to talk to them after the meeting, um, which I have done on many occasions. But um, a lot of times it's like talking to a wall. It's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. but my favorite one time at a meeting, we um, we wanted to get a pilot snow plowing a rule put in on Marshall Avenue in St. Paul so that uh, they could plow to the curb one day, one day a month, uh, or one day, uh, one day a month, or one day a week. And uh, so that meant that people had to move their cars from that side of the street um, from parking one day a week and, you know, for a couple of hours or something. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, some people at this meeting were just livid. I mean, they were absolutely crazy about it. And in particular, um, in particular, one woman. And after the meeting, a friend and I went up to talk to this woman and we were like, don't you have a garage space? You know, because she lived on Marshall Avenue and she goes, yeah, I have a garage space, but it's full of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's I think it's a human right to be able to get where you need to go without being endangered. But once you start talking to people, it's it is going to take away what they're used to having. There's happy mediums of things, you know, I mean, like, again, I'm not trying to like, um, if, if I could get something and negotiate it with businesses or other people, I'd much rather do that than, um, you know, and come up with something that they are happier with. Um, but sometimes you can't, I mean, sometimes it's just, um, it's brute political force to try to get something passed. What is the future going to look like, Andy? I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> I have no idea. Automated vehicles. Is that going to be a. Uh, uh, that I don't I don't believe in automated vehicles. I, I think that automated vehicles are a myth perpetuated by the car industry that gets people to keep thinking about cars and car solutions to transportation problems. But like even on a pragmatic level of engineering, I've, I've read things by MIT people who are working on driverless cars. Like we're, you're, you and me in our lifetime, we're not gonna see 
uh, widespread driverless cars. Um, the, the, the engineering problems involved are just like too complicated, um, mm -hmm. not to make a prototype or something that you can drive around, um, but, but to actually like scale it up to where you have, you know, 50, 100,000 of these things operating in an urban area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like, what if two of them are coming down a narrow road to, at, toward each other? What happens then? They, it's like war games. Right. Or, or, you know, the, the example this guy at MIT gave is like, it might be able to recognize a pedestrian as an object, um, but it's not going to be able to recognize that that pedestrian is a policeman waving their hands to stop <laughs> because there's a bridge out or there's a construction or something like that. Um, it's, it's not going to, it, it has trouble recognizing the difference between a hole in the ground and you know, a discoloration of the pavement surface. Driving is actually an incredibly complicated thing in your brain in terms of recognition of things and what have you. Um, uh, even though we do it, uh, people do it drunk while, <laughs> while fiddling with their phones, but it still like requires a high level of, of thinking and, and recognition that um, we're just a long way away from that with computer technology. And they like you to believe that, oh, it's right around the corner. Like every five years, they say, oh, five years from now, 20% of the cars on the road are going to be driverless cars. Um, but five years goes by and like, there's still like a few pilot programs and that's it. I just don't believe that in our lifetime, that's going to happen. And I think that the debate about that distracts from the fact that we really should be designing cities um, away from cars or, or designing cities that are built around walking and biking. But whether that'll happen or not, I don't know, you know, like what the reality of the future will be, I don't know, in, in terms of what we pay attention to. I don't think there'll be widespread driverless cars in it, but that doesn't mean cities won't keep trying to design for cars. I don't know. Where are you on climate, Armageddon? It's definitely coming down the pipe. I mean, they're just, you know, uh, it's closer and closer. We're just, uh, there's so many different things of which the climate crisis is just one symptom. Um, I was reading an article the other day about the lumber shortage. So um, you had these uh, beetles infesting forests in Canada and north, the western part of North America, wiping out, you know, just zillions of acres of timber. And the beetles cause more sap to come up in the trees to fight the beetle. And that sap makes the trees more flammable. And the beetles themselves are, you know, happening partly because of climate change and also just invasive species. But then um, with the warmer temperatures and these trees full of sap, they're just like tinder boxes and we have these huge wildfires. Um, and so the timber industry has seen so much stuff burned or destroyed by beetles that um, apparently lumber prices are starting to go through the roof. Um, for, you know, new construction or what have you. There's just so many, you know, plastics clogging the ocean, blah, 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 problems that are coming to a head. Things are going to get crazier before they get better. Well. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could tell you something like, you know, I'm awesomely happy, but it's definitely a reality. I hope that this administration takes stuff seriously, but in the same way that I believe Buttigieg based on his actions, not his words, you know, I'll believe the Biden administration when they actually like, um, you know, put some, uh, some stuff in place to reduce consumption. Um, I, I feel like the Green New Deal that's sort of being pushed by the Democrats is very um, oriented towards like green technologies and sort of like driverless cars, this idea that technology will save us from all our problems. 
instead of being focused on, um, you know, how can we reduce the vehicle miles traveled? How can we reduce consumption, um, consumption of meat, consumption of all sorts of things, um, you know, consumption of plastics, um, you know, how can we, and, and those things are actually much easier to do. I mean, you can just mandate that um, for one of my pet peeves, milk cartons can no longer have plastic bungholes on them. <laughs> because, <That's laughs> um, uh, like, have you, have you ever bought like a half gallon or a quart milk container recently? Not recently. Okay. If you buy one recently, like a milk carton, you can open the milk carton. Like, <laughs> it's it's a really easy thing to oh, do. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But, but now they have plastic sort of septic, um, you know, cap things and everything. So, you know, there's a billion of these things being produced every week, plastic caps for what, you know? Um, and there are tons of uses of plastic and packaging and lots of other things that we should just like mandate them out of existence. Yeah. You know, approaching the, the climate and other environmental crises from a consumption point of view, as opposed to just like, oh, let's find some green new technology to do what we've always been doing which I'm not against like, you know, some of these technologies or things, but I think like they really need to focus on how much we're using. This is a great way for me to transition. And so right now I'm going to play this interview by Andrea Learned with David Miller, who wrote this book called Solved, How the World's Great Cities Are Fixing the Climate Crisis. He's also the uh, Director of International Diplomacy for C40 Cities. Have you heard of that? Uh-uh. No. I'll look it up, though. Uh, I'm just going to play the interview. and um... Cool. Yeah, here's C40 Cities about. Oh, that's cool. That's nice. Uh, it says, around the world, C40 Cities connect 97 of the world's greatest cities to take bold climate action, leading the way towards healthier and more sustainable future, representing 700 plus million citizens and one quarter of the global economy. Mayors of the C40 Cities are committed to delivering on the most ambitious goals of the Paris Climate Agreement at a local level, as well as cleaning the air we breathe. So it's a network of, of world mega cities that are committing to making climate changes, which I think is great, because like I say, mayors, mayors of cities um, are where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and, and they have a lot of influence um, and have to deal with these problems. So that's great. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks for coming on. And here's the interview. All right. Thanks for having me. And thanks for doing your Today show. Today on Bike Talk, we are welcoming David Miller, the Director of International Diplomacy for C40 Cities. David was Mayor of Toronto from 2003 to 2010 and served as Chair of C40 Cities from 2008 until 2010. Under his leadership, Toronto became widely admired internationally for its environmental leadership, economic strength, and social integration. Welcome. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Great yeah. work. Keep yeah. it up. Um, and just in case Bike Talk listeners aren't familiar with who I am, I'm Andrea Learned. I'm a climate action leadership strategist, and I launched the Bikes for Climate. That's Bikes number four climate tag during work I was doing in corporate sustainability climate action work during the Paris Agreement talks. Um, David and I know each other, I think, mainly via Twitter since about that time. So it's great to finally meet you in Zoom person. Well, it actually seems like forever. So, um, you know, it may be since Paris, which was, of course, six years ago, but in the world of international diplomacy, only five years ago, because last year's COP got canceled. So, uh, or postponed, I guess. So, um, 
but six years in the in the current world is forever. So we're all yeah. friends. And I really appreciate that you're on Twitter, of course, myself. So it's a really wonderful way for people to stay connected to your leadership and for us to stay in touch. Um, so just to dig right in, um, in the climate action space, certainly C40 cities is well known, but our listeners may be less familiar with what such an NGO has to do with them or US North American cities specifically. So I will ask you and please expand however, what is the aim of the organization and how does it help cities like Los Angeles, Seattle and more? So C40 Cities is a coalition of leading global cities that was started by uh, then London Mayor Ken Livingston in 2005. And its goal is to use the voices and the actions of the world's major cities. So cities over 3 million, uh, originally 40 of them, hence the name, but to use the voices and the actions of those mayors to help the world avoid dangerous climate change. So we do that by using a peer-to-peer -peer learning model. So when one city is doing something well, the idea spreads rapidly uh, and also using the voices of these mayors because they're the mayors of the world's major cities, those voices are very influential internationally. So think cities like Los Angeles, uh, New York, Seattle, of course, as you just mentioned, um, Paris, uh, Barcelona, uh, Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Cape Town, Jakarta. Um, and um, originally the idea was we would take the cities from the G20 capitals, um, then pretty quickly uh, after conversations with his peers, including me uh, in my then role as mayor, Mayor Livingston realized in, in the US, for example, you wouldn't just want Washington DC, you do need the, the bigger cities. So that's the coalition. Uh, it's proven uh, highly effective on addressing climate change. I know it's a long answer to your question, but I think it's important for readers to understand. For example, after Paris, and in Paris, it was fantastic. We're all excited that there was an agreement, but the hidden truth was the agreement was inadequate in a couple of ways, one of which the ambition wasn't high enough. The ambition was to hold overall global heating to no more than two degrees, and science showed that it has to be 1.5. So what C40 mayors decided at their next summit, which was a little bit later, I think about a year later in Mexico City, was that they would all commit to doing their share of holding overall uh, global heating to 1.5 degrees. And it became a condition of membership that you have a 1.5 degree uh, compliant plan, which very loosely means that you need to peak emissions by 2020, uh, do your fair share of having them by 2030, which would be more in North America than Africa, for example, on a path to net zero by 2050. Um, and that covers all of our cities. So we represent around seven city regions of around 775 million people. So it's like a, you know, a giant country. And I'm proud to say that the majority of our cities have been able to actually not only bring in those plans, but are well on the path to starting actions. My uh, home city of Toronto, for example, uh, peaked emissions, I think in 2016, a while ago anyway. And as a result of a plan we started in 2007 is now 33% below 1990 levels. So city-based climate action really can produce results and their voices, of course, when they're, they're speaking from a platform of action really can make a difference. 
That is so, I love those, just hearing those numbers uh, that you're at 1990 le levels or better than 1990 levels or at 1990 yeah. levels. Yeah. 33% below. Yeah. That's, that is so powerful. That is so powerful. One of the things that strikes me, David, is that each city, the, the, the mayor, you know, who's representing the city within the coalition, it is kind of up to them also to be really leveraging their own influence and their leadership and their voice right in this whole big cause and so i know for a fact that you know i know you are really good at that of course um and hidalgo's paris team etc is is kind of that realizing that there's this leadership and the influence you have speaking from your platform demonstrating from your platform how tell me how that works and, and are each of the mayors really involved and are their teams really on top of that aspect too well, I tell you, you raise a really good point because those um, voices of the mayors matter locally, they matter nationally, and they matter internationally, you know, all three. And the interesting thing about our organization is there's no dues. Ah. But what happens, it's a it's an organization of committed mayors. So uh, if a mayor changes, for example, and the city is no longer taking bold climate action, you can be invited to leave by the membership. So one of the things we see is this group of mayors really takes action. Mayor Hidalgo was a perfect example. You know, she's taken very bold action in trying to transform Paris to a place that is much more green, literally in the nature sense, is a place that is far more accessible for pedestrians and cyclists. And it has a fantastic public transport system. So, you know, it said, we have a fantastic public transport system. Why are we prioritizing transport by cars when it creates all sorts of issues, local health issues, pollution, climate change? Why don't we prioritize transportation for people? And uh, to do that is very bold. And, of course, she was uh, chair of C40 while the Paris Accords were being negotiated. So there, there was a lot of symbolism in her actions as well on the international scale. But she's been influential locally to help um, build a huge base of support for necessary climate action. She's been influential nationally and influential internationally. I think she's a, a really good example of what is possible for a leading mayor to do. She is incredible. And that was one of my questions um, that she's so noted and she's sort of the one and in my work in the Bikes for Climate kind of pushing that I'm doing, I find that I have to keep saying, look at what Anne Hidalgo is doing and also look at how she's amplifying it and also look how she's being seen riding a bike in Paris, taking pictures of herself riding a bike in Paris. So she really is exemplifying that leadership and that influence. I'm not necessarily seeing that from a lot of the other mayors in C40 cities. And so that was one of the reasons for my question. Like one of my takes as a communication strategist will, and to your having been a mayor, I would ask you this too. It's like, do mayors sort of, this is going to sound weird, but you know what I mean. Do mayors get jealous that other mayors are being seen like that? And will that motivate other mayors to want to do that? So, i.e., you know, is there a mayor of, I mean, I don't know if the mayor of LA is seen riding a bike, for example. I don't know. I haven't seen the mayor of Seattle riding a bike. How that political will that Anne Hidalgo is really just representing is incredible. I want to see, I want that to turn into something where other mayors 
are like, ooh, let's model after her. And I'm not seeing it so much now. Can you tell me a little bit about being a mayor and how hard that is to do or why some wouldn't do it and, and all that? Sure. Well, yeah, you know, mayor, one of the reasons you see what see Mayor Hidalgo being present a lot is she's bold. She's incredibly charismatic. And so, you know, she gets a, a lot of coverage for her, her actions. And one of the interesting things about what she's done in, in Paris is that there was a lot of controversy around what she did, but she won election relative re-election relatively easily. And it shows that people are there. And part of the gift of mayors is you understand particularly if you're like me, I came from municipal politics. I've been elected for nine years before I ran for mayor. And if you make a real effort to do the number one thing that matters in politics, which is listen, it doesn't mean that just to do whatever is you know, popular or whatever loud voices are telling you to do, but really listen and understand where people are coming from. So even if you have a different solution than we they want, at least you can come to them on their terms. The best mayors have that gift. They really listen and really have the pulse of their city. You know, for me in my time, Richard Daly was the mayor of Chicago. He, he was a great, great mayor. And he, he did a ton of work on climate. He's never got very much credit for it, but a ton, particularly around buildings, which are so critical, um, you know, not as... Uh, Sexy, maybe as electric exactly. vehicles or, yeah. you know, or cycling, but really important. And Richard Daly lived and breathed Chicago every day. Like he just loved that city and, and knew the rhythm of it. And that to me, that's what a great mayor is. And I think Mayor Hidalgo showed that because her reelection showed she actually was listening to the people in Chicago or of uh, Paris, maybe Chicago, <laughs> you know, not the loud voices that were really against making a transportation system for people that made it easier for people to get around a city and faster and healthier. And, uh, and uh, I believe that um, most C40 mayors uh, are like that. Some are quieter than others and, and, you know, lead differently on this issue. And some take a different leadership role at a, a different time. You know, um, when we uh, hosted the C40 uh, uh, Copenhagen event around COP15, which was six years before Paris, and it failed, as you, you know, uh, the city's part didn't fail. But the mayor, then mayor of Copenhagen, Mayor Rick Beauregard, commissioned a new bicycle to be developed by MIT, which was sort of an electric assist bicycle for the mayor's conference. It was co-hosted by C40 in Copenhagen. We had over 100 mayors there. And there is a, a video of me very badly singing eight days a week riding oh. one of <laughs> these bikes around Copenhagen. I must see it. Permanently on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> but I, you know, in answer to your question, the very best mayors are really gifted communicators because they listen and, and they, they need to speak to their values and what they're trying to do. But if they do it from a place where they've really listened, they're more likely to pull a coalition of people together to, to support the measures that are needed. And, you know, one thing we do know, urban residents are very aware of climate change, particularly the last few years. We've seen wildfires in Los Angeles and, and Australia, massive storms. Houston has had at least three floods in the last five years. 
that are supposed to occur every 500 years. I mean, it's extraordinary. Houston has a climate plan that reaches C40 goals as far as is possible from Houston. It's a bit more difficult there because they don't control the electricity grid at all. Right. <laughs> but you know, Houston, the world capital of the oil industry, has a very good, bold climate plan. And why did Mayor Turner have the political room to do that? It's because of all these big storms. People get it. They get that there's something wrong. And if you can marshal that knowledge and goodwill through your own communication skills based on listening, you can do a lot. And I, our best mayors do do that. They're not, you know, some are better on some issues than others, I'm sure. But uh, that's what our best mayors do. Yeah. And one, just a kind of a note there, I actually grew up in a small town called Benton Harbor across the lake from Chicago. And so Chicago, in a way, was my growing up big city. And I don't even know that I really understood that he was, that Richard Daly was that good on climate. So I appreciate you saying that. And also, but I did know that he represented Chicago. Like, I mean, I I even felt like a resident of Chicago because like I said, that was the big city we went to. And it was, he was so connected to it. So I really agree with that. And I see that in Anne Hidalgo and just, I'm excited that there are some that are being more visible and sort of understand that listening, but she just really is somebody that I point to. So I'm looking forward to seeing more mayors, especially in North America, start to do that so I can really amplify them. Um, All of that is great. That sort of leads me to your book, really the name of the book is solved how the world's great cities are fixing the climate crisis. And there's chapters on every aspect of it. But of course, the one that was most interesting to me and for this purposes is the one on transportation. So on that note, Paris, of course, was a big one in there. Tell us a little bit about the key cities you highlighted in that chapter and why their examples were the ones you chose to highlight. To answer the second question, second part of the question, I got to go back one step. Okay. Um, Because there's something I, I missed in the introduction about cities. C40 did a study in partnership with the uh, World Engineering Consultancy, Arup, that shows that about 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to cities. And that includes greenhouse gas emissions that are outside cities but required for their existence. For example, an electricity plant. If you have a coal-fired plant that's in Benton Harbor and it's serving Chicago, it would count as Chicago's greenhouse gas emissions for that calculation. And of that 70%, the vast majority are in how we heat and cool buildings, how we create transportation systems, um, how we uh, manage our waste, and how we generate our electricity. So the the basic thesis of the book, and it's the basic thesis of C40 really as well, If 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are in urban areas and they're in those four areas, then if we address those four areas, we can help the world avoid dangerous climate change. And it's it's the book's pragmatic in that sense. I think it's hopeful because it shows a path. It's real, right? It's a real path. It's not made up. Mm -hmm. And so in the transportation sector, I try to focus on a couple of things, really three, the importance of public transport, the importance of active transport, and the importance of electrifying transport. And the short thesis really is, and I I may not precisely put it this way in the book, but the short thesis is we need to ensure our cities have sufficient density and are built in in such a way that they can support active transportation, people walking and cycling, this idea of the 15-minute city that's really accelerated during the COVID response, 
can support excellent public transport systems and can electrify private and public transport where people aren't using active transport. That's a, a critical part to this. And, you know, the good news is there are really great examples of that being done somewhere. The challenge is, can we do it everywhere quickly enough to solve the climate crisis? Yeah, each of those areas, of course, the public transit, the active transportation and electrifying everything 100% resonates with me so much as part of what I'm just banging a drum on constantly now. One of the things I'm interested in is this term active transportation. So I, we know it's a term because we're in cities and in bikes and all this stuff, but that's the whole thing with car culture, which is North American car culture, right? How do you get and, and as a mayor and as somebody who's listened to the people of Toronto for a while and kind of all this, what are you seeing with regard to starting to switch mindsets about getting out of the car and what active transportation is and all the benefits, right? The health, the air pollution, the getting there faster, you know, not having to find parking. Anyway, any things that have emerged with regard to active transportation and selling citizens on it? Well, I, I think different places will come to this in a different way. You know, in some parts of the world, C40 cities start the conversation with their residents about air quality. And I think there's a powerful argument to be made. For example, China has had a pretty huge advance in a whole range of things, including on electrified transportation, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. And I think there's a persuasive argument to be made that that ability and necessity for the Chinese government to invest in clean energy started not with international pressure, but with concern from residents of cities like Beijing about air quality. So that's one way to have a conversation with people. Another way is, you know, COVID has forced white collar workers to stay home. And people have all of a sudden realized that they actually need to invest in their neighborhood and they want a neighborhood that's full of life and is economically successful. This can be traced all the way back to Jane Jacobs, right? That was her model. Her model was people live and work in their neighborhood so that the corner restaurant, if it's a residential neighborhood, will have lunch trade from people working there. And if it's a you know business neighborhood, they'll have dinner trade and breakfast trade, not just lunch trade. For example, it's a simple example, but her very strong belief was that urban economies and neighborhoods are much more successful when people live and work in the same neighborhoods. And I, I think the necessity of dealing with the pandemic and the necessity of people working from home has supported mayors who are taking bold action around walking and cycling, particularly based on this idea of a 15-minute neighborhood, which is loosely what I just said. Basically, you should be able to get your daily needs for entertainment, for recreation, for work, for food, necessities, shopping within about 15 minutes. Different places interpret it differently, but we've seen globally a huge rise in cycling infrastructure, in walkability of neighborhoods, in greening of neighborhoods, which matters a lot and makes in some countries it's the difference between being able to walk comfortably and not if there's a tree canopy. Um, you know, Freetown in Sierra Leone has a huge tree planting program called Freetown is Tree Town. I love it. Right? But really, in their context, a very important part of adaptation to, to climate change and an important way to, to provide people 
uh, safe and cleaner urban environment with a lot of people who are desperately poor and, you know, walk or take uh, very basic public transport because they have no economic choice. So there's a whole range of, of layers to this. Uh, yeah, I love Freetown Street Town too. But, you know, Barcelona, Montreal, Paris, uh, and many others have really, really promoted the infrastructure to allow, that in essence, allows us to safely work from home and get around our neighborhoods. You know, Toronto's put in more separated bike lanes in the last year than it had in the last 20. Wow. Was, when I was in office, it was a huge political battle. And the same people I was battling with then who fought bitterly every chance to have an extra kilometer of bike lanes are now merrily, literally the same people, <laughs> now merrily literally? putting in, literally, yes. Yeah. And I'm thinking of one in particular, but I won't name them. Okay. <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? I totally agree. In Seattle, we're banging the drum and saying, you know, ride your bike to work, short trips, et cetera, et cetera. And then it takes something as horrific as COVID. And I'm looking around my little neighborhood and it is going to be a lot of people that work at Amazon, right? And drive their car downtown to Amazon and kind of, or Microsoft drive across the lake to Microsoft. And it just so overnight did shrink. And I would see, and this is interesting too, I think I would see dads in particular with their kids riding bikes in the middle of the day and the joy on their faces and the, and then they bought the ev i mean the e-bike rather because we have a, a manufacturer here in town that's pretty well known and so everyone's like oh and they just immediately bought one it was really quick david and so it was it's we needed this horrific thing to happen that reset our whole brains i think that's that's too bad i'm you know i'm glad this is coming out of it but and again, to your, I'm hoping that it sticks, right? I'm hoping that this behavior change sticks. And the other thing that I've noticed, like when you list all the C40 cities, they're amazing. A lot of these cities are places where people choose to visit, right? I'm yes. going to go to Barcelona. I'm going to go to Copenhagen, right? And then they get there and like, oh, it was magnificent. It was glorious, right? We walked, we did, 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 did. and then they get home and they don't vote and they don't tell their political leaders or they don't participate this is what i'm thinking happens because they come home and they do this so it's really interesting the disconnect between where people are choosing to travel and love it and then they come home and they don't think they can demand it or they don't it's really interesting i think i think uh, american cities are complicated there's you've got some fantastic mayors in in the states there's one mayor county in, in des moines it's really excellent he's not a member of c40 the city's too small but a lot of America was, if not built around the car, was rebuilt around the car in the 50s and 60s, Los Angeles being the critical example. And Toronto, by contrast, didn't rip up its streetcars. Mm. You know, we didn't privatize them and sell them to Ford or whoever ripped them up in Los Angeles. And we benefited from that. So that, you know, there's, there's a historic issue that's challenging. And it's one of the reasons that I think from a strategic perspective, public transport is extremely important because it gives people the opportunity. If you have a really good public transport network and safe walking and cycling, it gives people a chance not to own a car. And a lot of people, once they start using those kinds of systems, discover they really like them and it's much easier. You know, we don't own a car. And uh, I'm lucky because uh, in Toronto, I live a few steps away from a subway stop and two more steps to a reserved bike lane. 
uh, running east-west and another one running north-south. So I, I've got safe options. But I, I believe that the public transit backbone gives you the chance to build those more compact cities. And what we've seen in the pandemic is a thirst for that. The pandemic's been tragic on many, many levels. There's no question about that. But we've seen people, I think, recognize what, what they want. We've also seen some bold action. Lisbon done some very interesting things because some of the challenges here, people can live sort of downtown and walk, but it's very expensive. So Lisbon did two things during the pandemic. They're using their EU recovery funds to build new transport, new public transport, I think new subways. Um, and they also took uh, short-term rental tourist housing, tourist accommodation, and outlawed it. Ah. And then said to people who had apartments that they used to rent tourists short-term, we, the city, will rent them from you. And if you give us a lease, we're going to re-rent it at a lower rate to uh, low-income workers in what are now called essential op occupations who work in the city but live outside. Wow. So they did a dual thing where they improved public transport and made it easier to live in the city and more affordable. And that's not only good for climate change, good for air quality, it's good for society, it creates more equality, it creates a real society because people are actually living there. It will support small businesses that aren't just for tourists, are for people. Um, and it's very transformative. Medellin's doing something similar on the public transport. And this is a, probably a bit off topic, but Medellin also, basically, there's a lot of Venezuelan migrants there at the moment. When the pandemic hit, they basically said, we're all in this together. Uh, wow. We're going to regularize you. You can all work. And you're all entitled to whatever health care we can give because the pandemic's made us all equal. We need to solve a collective problem. We've got to solve collectively. So we, we have seen, because of the urgent and extremely serious nature of dealing with this global health threat, we have seen much more collective thinking about how to deal with another glo existential global threat, which is climate. Well, it's interesting what you're saying about Lisbon. It basically is they were given the opportunity to sort of demonstrate, try it, you'll like it, right? You know, try, we've got these new subways or this new transit or these, this new bike infrastructure it's here it's sort of gleaming now try it then also like try having you know people that aren't really fancy tourists from other places live in your buildings instead you know we'll help you do that so that's that's the thing that i'm seeing a lot and let's get into evs next but this idea of try it you'll like it like you know giving cities and giving residents of cities the opportunity to try these things that for some reason they've been fearing and i will say specifically it seems like the us is such this bizarre car culture case any opportunity though that i've seen for somebody who's resisting e-bikes or resisting whatever and then they're suddenly kind of forced to take the subway once when they i don't know go to paris or something then they're like oh i'm a complete convert so I just see that there's a ton of opportunity in presenting the, presenting the kind of the support to try it because you will like it. <laughs> it just seems like you'll really like it. A, a lot of the, particularly the transportation solutions uh, around climate change are things that are challenging to bring in politically. But once they're there, they're the kind of thing that people think have been there forever. And, yes, and that's it. They, don't get rid of it. I want more. <laughs> Don't get, and that's the goal. I mean, it's a hard political space to get to people saying, "Oh, 
I disagree with this a year ago, but now don't get rid of it. But the classic example is Ken Livingston, who brought in a congestion charge to London, England, that was so controversial, the leader of his own party, the Labour Party, Tony Blair, told people not to support it before Livingston's re-election. Like, can you imagine it'd be like Joe Biden, you know, attacking a prominent Democratic mayor? Right. Right. And he, not only he won re-election, it was incredibly popular. And why was it popular? Because he was smart. He didn't just bring in a congestion charge. He was solving a real problem of congestion. He was solving a real problem of air health quality. The studies showing the health condition of um, young people uh, in schools in, in London's core are appalling. It's terrible because of the air pollution. And he provided a solution. He used the money from the congestion charge to do a massive increase in public transport, huge numbers of new buses, and built more reserved bus lanes and all sorts of things to make the bus network work much better. So he gave a solution. And to me, that's the art. You know, you don't just identify the problem, you provide a solution. And that's what you're talking about. It's been forced by, you know, this awful global pandemic, but people now see with their own eyes, hey, this is kind of good. I like an e-bike. It'll go up the hills in Seattle. I got all sweaty riding my own bike. Um, <laughs> From your perspective, though, as a mayor, see, and this is what I don't understand, because I, I get that, and I'm always trying to help. I want to help more city leaders, like, figure out the community, kind of the smart, strategic communications around this. My question is, is they have these ideas. They know that they're bold. They've got the political leadership to do it. But the time between making these decisions, being bold, having it all work through its processes and then having the results there so that the citizens can experience it. That time is a long time. So how do you hold them? It's a practical challenge in <laughs> government. It's a really practical. I mean, my, what I did and my, the art to, to my mayoralty, and we were very activist. Every council meeting for seven years, we had one really bold public policy initiative about poverty or housing or street-involved homelessness, or transport, or climate, or equity, or, uh, you know, helping young people in low-income neighborhoods. Uh, every single meeting, there was something really bold. What I learned over time is getting a policy passed politically so it's uh, a law is only the price of admission. <laughs> right? you've, you've possibly unlocked the front door. Okay. Or maybe you've just taken your keys out of the pocket. Mm -hmm. But you've got to go in the house, and you've got to furnish it, mm -hmm. and you've got to clean it, and um, you know, you've got to pay the mortgage. So for me, there were a bunch of things. There are bureaucratic things that matter. You have uh, a system that's been created over however long the city's existed. You know, in Toronto's case, w way over 175 years. And you've got a transportation department that's been taught this is what roads are. Right. They're for cars. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to succeed in implementing, you need to clean the house. And I don't mean to throw everybody out, but you need to make it clear what the priorities are and ensure that the system respects that. And I use some strategies to do that. So on public transport, we had several major projects and they take a very long time from creation to inception but because i'd been elected for nine years before and i'd been on the <clears throat> the board of the transit commission ttc in toronto it was very clear to me that if the mayor didn't step in 
there was a real risk to projects not happening. So I had the chair of the transit commission and his staff brief me monthly on the progress of the projects. I had the city manager and the CFO brief me every two weeks on the financing for the projects and really drove action that way. The challenge, you only got so much time as a mayor. So you really have to pick which things you're going to drive. You know, what are you going to drive? And my political career was about, you know, equity in the environment, both. So I drove actions where, you know, those things sort of came together. Public transport does, active transport does. But owning a car is expensive. Driving to work is expensive. Parking at work is expensive. That's not for working people, right? That's essentially for white-collar workers, really, unless you work at a factory or something where outside the city and the parking's free. But I, I really tried, like we had a, a homeless strategy to help street-involved homeless people called Street to Homes, in which we sent out social workers to get to know people and then help the individuals get into an actual piece of housing. And to that housing, which was generally private, not public housing, bring um, whatever they needed, whether it was counseling to get work, counseling around drug addiction, alcohol addiction. I use the same strategy on that. But you can only pick a very few things as a mayor to do that. You have to either be very smart about delegating and the responsibilities of your council members, council, a council member lead. You know, the city council has an important role as particularly chairs of committees. They can lead in that way. But really, in the end, the public service will pay most attention to the mayor. So if you pick the two or three things that you really want to accomplish, you can really drive it using that kind of, of technique. Because pub the public service is great. It just needs really clear direction. And you do need to – there's so many complications and obstacles. It's not like a private business where you have one goal. It's making money. Government has so many layers that you need to force it to move at the speed required. So that's that's what I tried to do. I haven't discussed this with my colleagues about their techniques, but I suspect they do something similar when it's a really critical public policy goal. Well, that would lead me to kind of just thinking of Bike Talk listeners. Is there anything that citizens, are? can we do a better job? Do we know that the mayors are doing what they're doing? How can we support them if they decide that X, Y, Z are going to be their top three things this year? I will give you an example. The advocates for biking on bike, you know, hashtag bike Twitter are huge. And they exist in any big city around the world, probably. I don't think mayors get it and are leveraging them the way they could. So these like little social media kind of connections and that sort of engagement isn't really there. To that point, I will say that Secretary Buttigieg immediately, like the minute he got, you know, in the office, was speaking at the American Bike League Conference, is seen riding bike share in DC, is right, is using Twitter well, engaging with people that say nice things about him, whatever. So it's I guess I'll go back to what my question is, is how can citizens know that they, there are these progressive things that their mayors are trying to push forward and be there and be a really visible amplification of, yeah, we're ready. We want this. We'll help you. Is there any, any ideas on that? Well, a few things. First of all, people shouldn't be discouraged. You know, if we'd been having this conversation 15 years ago, there wasn't any bike sharing. True. But, and that... Bike sharing essentially spread the way it was because of C40. 
Okay. And more or less, it's a story I told in the book, but more or less what happened was the mayor of Paris, uh, Bernard Delano, I think is his name, before Mayor Hidalgo, brought it in. I don't know where he got the idea, but he brought it in. And London and Montreal, both at the same time, heard from him at a C40 event. And they both went back, and London, uh, Ken Livingston said, we got to do this. Of course, Paris is doing it, so London's going to do it. <laughs> and um, Mayor Tremblay in Montreal said, we've got to do it. And he went to his parking authority. Montreal is very interesting. It's all sorts of interesting partnerships. He went to his parking authority and said, I want to do bike share. Your job on behalf of the city, if the parking authority, is to have low-cost parking to support small business. Can we partner? And they ended up manufacturing Bixie bikes, which were then sold to London, New York, <laughs> all because Love it. Um, basically Mayor Tremblay, who's, you know, francophone, yeah. I mean, he's fluently bilingual, but it's his first language, uh, heard Mayor Delano speak at a C40 conference or at a C40 event and learned this idea and it sounded great. And that's truly how it spread. But it's an interesting example because um, it was a good idea, right? Bike share is a simple, good idea that works economically. And I think the first thing people should say to themselves is, hey, we made real progress on that. It was good for biking. It was good for cities. It was good for air quality. It's fun. It's cheap. It's reasonable. Everybody uses it now. Taken for granted. It's one of these things that's taken for granted. It's like it's always been there. But actually, at the beginning, there was a big fight. We brought it in Toronto. The conservative part of council fought back and said, basically said, it's a waste of money. And we had to end up bringing in half of what we wanted to uh, in order to demonstrate that it wasn't. And it's now of the magnitude that we'd originally conceived and it's highly successful. So I think people need to have that in mind. My advice to people would be you do need to organize locally. You do need to be in touch in a in a non-confrontational way with the mayor's office okay that's can we stop right there just for a second because i non be in touch in a non-confrontational way i think that that's something that maybe bike advocates or any kind of strong advocates don't maybe get i will say i see it on twitter they're a little bit too harsh right i look at it and i kind of cringe so give me maybe just at that point a little example of what is helpful non-confrontational input and how do people do they get in touch with the head of transportation for the city or what really is that so first of all there's nothing wrong with people saying stuff as individuals that's tough yes uh, that's true you know you're you're an elected office you got to hear opinions mm-hmm. but you need to craft a citywide cycling organization that has a good positive relationship with the mayor's office. And if the city's of enough size, you should be in touch with the mayor's office, with the environment lead in the mayor's office, and the head of the transportation department in the public service, and have an honest relationship with them. It doesn't mean that you don't stand up for what you believe in, you need to, but you need a functional working relationship because you want to help the mayor's office understand that politically there's a huge constituency for this mm-hmm. and that can meet the mayor's stated goals if she wants you know, clean air, cheaper transportation, equity, all this stuff. And you need to learn from them as well. But you also want to be in touch with this public service, the head of transportation, because in the end, they're the ones doing it. That's the first thing. The second is I would bring functional working examples that are relevant, like, you know, what 
is done in Victoria, Canada might be quite relevant to Seattle. It's a lot smaller city. It's not as hilly, but similar climate. Maybe Toronto's relevant to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Copenhagen's unbelievable, but you know people sort of dismiss it. Oh well, it's Denmark. Yeah. It's Copenhagen. It's flat. <laughs> yeah. You know they don't have winter. Well, they do have winter, but people don't see it as winter. Right. You know, etc. Which is too bad because you see people riding to work. You know, men dressed in suits and women dressed in dresses. It's fantastic. <laughs> but you know, find some relevant examples that are really relevant in your political, economic, and physical context, and take those to the mayor's office in a constructive spirit, I think is the right way to say it. Don't back down from your ideals, but use a constructive spirit. On that note, I will go back to your book, right? So here's the thing in C40 cities, you guys are all talking amongst yourselves, right? You're all these amazing ideas are being passed around and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I feel like you know, I'm not saying this just to, you know, be kind because you're the guest on the show, but it's like having like this book, like here, look, these are examples. This is how it's done in Paris. And this is how, like, even that, I think, even, you know, passing along the book or kind of any, the way that, or, you know, kind of clever stories in Fast Company about how great things are in Des Moines or whatever, like really identifying those and forwarding them to people, not not thinking that they're going to act on them. It's something that I know that I do and what I kind of try and do with my Twitter handle. It's like, look what's happening in blah. Look at X reporter who wrote about this happening in blah. Just push out on the airwaves all these incredible stories, which to which your book, you know, kind of is included. If you're saying to your followers, buy David's book and send it to all city councils <laughs> and mayors across the United States, that's very gracious of you. I certainly oh. appreciate that. <laughs> I do think it is useful to have the best practice example, whether from my book or elsewhere. I think it's very useful. It simplifies things for people. You know, the most progressive elected officials are trying to do the right thing. Sometimes there's loud opposition to measures that build better cities. And so they need to know that there is support there as well. And that's why organizing is critical. Not Twitter is a fantastic platform to have a conversation with like-minded people and occasionally to see how awful uh, the U.S. right is. Oh, my God. Right, right. Um, But it's a useful place to have a conversation with like-minded people. Lots of social media is a good place to organize, but the art of politics in the end is organizing like-minded people to show there's a real constituency Mm -hmm. and to have real implementable solutions. And the more you can take those off the shelf from somewhere else and easily adapt them, the better. And, you know, if you do that, you're likely to help a politician who wants to help um, succeed in implementing what you want. And it may not be 100% of what you want. You know, it might be 78% and maybe a little bit different oriented and maybe there's some compromise somewhere, but you can go a very long way if you do that. If you're organized, you build a proper relationship and you have some real concrete substance to bring to the table. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you just kind of personally is that you are a biker. I want to just hear a little bit just to sort of round out the story. And I think you you are a biker, bicyclist. You said that and you don't own a car. So tell me a little bit about were you doing that when you were mayor? Did you bike as transport? Like, tell me about your conversion or your use of bikes and kind of understanding of this. So uh, I did bike when I was mayor, but mostly Toronto is uh, 43 kilometers wide. So that's about uh, 28 miles. 
uh, it's a big, big, big city. So, you know, as mayor, my duty was to be in every neighborhood. So I would tend to take public transport. I also had the privilege of having a car. We had a, my predecessor had a Lincoln that was <laughs> about as big as our house. Of course, yes. Made in Detroit. Uh, we uh, got rid of it, although boy, you can get used to luxury pretty quickly and got a Prius. So <laughs> oh, my official duties, generally, depending where it was, I would take transit or be driven in the Prius. But in certain things, I would bike to where convenient. I had a older hybrid, more closer to mountain bike than closer to ride, ro road bike. But I had you know, before I was elected, I was a lawyer and I used to commute to work riding my bike. Where I live, you could ride down to the lake and uh, along the bike path there and up to downtown. It was really easy. So I was commuting to work by bike in the 80s. And I did a fair bit as the city councilor, less so as uh, mayor, because I used to have obligations at 6.30 in the morning. It was just, you know, if you're driving 30 miles at 6.30 in the morning, transit or car was a little more effective for me. Yeah, yeah. But post being mayor, I picked up the cycling again. Unfortunately, my bike got stolen. Oh, so on March 21st last year, I bought a new bike, which is again a hybrid, but it's very close to a road bike. It's an aluminum frame, carbon forks, disc brakes, very light, uh, felt, uh, Versa 10 speed, superb bike. Just fits me perfectly. It's fantastic. And I've ridden it or some other bikes, I'll tell you about that in a second, every single day since mm -hmm. the beginning of the pandemic. And I love it. It's become my go-to form of exercise. I was a runner, but I unfortunately have uh, hurt my knee, so I, I really can't run. My go-to form of exercise, my go-to form of commuting. I bike everywhere, every day. We live part of the year in Victoria, BC. I bought another bike out here. I had a used bike out here before, so I had something to get around on. Mm -hmm. And it's just become the way I get around. It's fantastic. My only worry is in a big city, to be safe, you need protected bike lanes. Yes. And there's no no question about that. I got hit by a car a few years ago. I was fine, but it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. I said some really rude things to the driver. Well, I'm sure you did. I didn't know I could be that rude. <laughs> I, I can 100% imagine I would do the same. I can be that rude. But mm -hmm. that's the one thing for me, if we really want this culture to accelerate, and it's interesting since, you know, the 80s when I was biking to work, like it's multiple times easier, safer now, but lots more has to be done. There's no question about that whatsoever. And, you know, we advanced the cause of biking a lot in Toronto when I was in office, but there was a ton of political resistance, particularly from small businesses who were afraid of losing parking. And at least in Toronto's context, they've now figured out that they're actually better off with cycling and walking for the most part, not all, but for the most part. And it's that objection has, has mostly disappeared. That's one of those try it, you'll like it kind of if you ride. This is what this is my dream. And tell me if you like if there would be any way that we could give everybody, including a mayor or the transportation, and the environmental, everyone in a city an e-bike for a week just to do their regular stuff they would see that they would see local businesses much more. They would see that it's scary and more better infrastructure needs to be there. They would see the joy. They would see the freedom and not having parking. So 
infrastructure is the obvious thing and that's part of this whole discussion and i guess that would be a good question how does that fit into the examples that you have in the book or that c40 cities is banding about is that in there and I, we are getting ready to kind of wind down so you know but that's one question and then another thing we didn't address if you wanted to was evs if there's anything about evs that you wanted to address sure. So the, I mean, C40 has a walking and cycling network, and it's a big issue. In addition to climate change, it deals with air quality, also inequity in certain ways. So it's it's a really big deal in a lot of cities. There's, there's a lot of progress, but I think your underlying point's right. The more elected officials walk and cycle or take transit, for that matter, instead of driving, the more likely they are to understand in their gut what needs to be done. Certainly, you know, I grew up taking transit. We didn't own a car when I was growing up. We emigrated from England and Canada's winters were so bad. My mom said, I'm not driving. <laughs> Love it. But it, was, it was just my mom and me. Oh, and wow. uh, yeah. so we took the bus everywhere. So for me, it's natural, but it's always given me as a politician a real push for tra public transit. Right, And I think the same thing for cycling, because I commuted by, by bike. And I fully agree. The more people see it with their own eyes, the... Uh, the better. There's no question. And just on EVs, two or three points. Electrifying public transport matters because diesel's bad, whether it's a bus or anything else. Shenzhen, China, its entire bus fleet is electric. And when cities started talking about this a few years ago, the manufacturers said, we're decades out. But the city said, well, we're going to do it anyway. Wow. And all of a sudden, the manufacturers started providing vehicles and proudly boasting about local jobs. And cool. um, so 16,000 electric buses in, in Shenzhen, China. There's now 66,000 on the streets of C40 cities alone. President Biden supporting it, the Canadian government supporting it. We should be able to see all of our public transit go electric very quickly. And I personally think the path to EVs, which in the U.S. is going to be an important part of this transition because so many cities are built in car-centric ways, I think it's through fleets. You know, why isn't the post office entirely EV? The vehicles exist now. Why isn't Pure Later? Why isn't Amazon? Well, there's lots of other reasons. With Amazon's case, for instance, all independent contractors, they're driving people's wages down as much as they can. But there, there are massive opportunities if we start from fleets and show people it's not just Tesla, right? It is a routine thing. And if you then have a combination of electrified public transport, which is nicer to travel on, by the way, mm. cities built for walking and cycling, and you know EVs available to supplement that, you've made huge progress from a climate perspective. And I think from an economic perspective, you're driving an industrial transition that's the one that's needed. And that's really important as well. And that's the importance of the cities and the fleets. New York City has some huge number of vehicles in its fleet it's regular fleet, the city fleet, including it's even tried electric garbage packers. So cities can be part of driving that industrial transition like we did on electric buses. And that's the key to that part of things. I think in an analogous way to the way that the best cities are starting to drive a transition to, to walkable, cyclable neighborhoods. Well, you just you touched on something that I didn't even bring up in this conversation. And just briefly, the, the idea of if you're going to electrify fleets and look at postal, et cetera, et cetera, all of that, where do you fit? And I know it's kind of getting some steam in Toronto on cycle logistics, you know, e-cargo bikes and LEVs for last mile delivery. So you talk about Amazon, talk about last mile delivery in urban centers. Oh, my goodness. Do we have any hope? Do we have any hope for that? Yes, I don't know quite the mechanism because I haven't put enough thought into it okay. to triggering that to be massive. 
Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. It's happening mm -hmm. organically now, mm -hmm. but it's but the exception. It's yeah. Yeah, very slowly. It's exceptional. Okay. And it should be routine. Absolute complete sense. It does. And there, after this call, I'm going to give you the name of a friend of my a colleague in Vancouver, BC, who's sort of leading sort of the expertise and the logistics and the understanding of this. And again, to the point that I said before, where when I'm looking at celebrating mayors in climate who are riding their bike or sort of, you know, really amplifying active transportation, I've got a couple mayors to point to. And I, it's Anadago in Paris, it's Val Plant in Montreal. It tends to not be U.S. mayors, I'll tell you that. I am looking at Satya Conway Rhodes in Madison. She rides her bike, right? And I'm friends with people in Ann Arbor and I'm sort of looking at that. So I keep pointing there. And on the psychologistics thing, my friend Sam and I, we keep going, well, you know, we we're talking to the EU cycling federations and we're talking to the UK cycling federations because they're our psychologistics. They're in it and they know it and they've got it all down. We've got models. So it's to your point. It's like models exist. You yeah. got mayors have to be interested in this so that we can get it in front of them. But we could go on about that forever. Well my view of this is a really great mayors worth their weight in gold. But you know, in the end it's up to us. If we want something, we can make it happen collectively. And, you know, you've just, and that's the way to drive it. You take the model, you organize, and you find the the politicians that are empathetic and help them find a way to drive the solution. And this is something that should be really achievable. It's very exciting. It's interesting. It's sort of like people see somebody delivering with a proper delivery bike and it's fun they go wow look at that bike you know are we in amsterdam or what right. that i mean to the point of psychologistics and e-cargo delivery and all the stuff that we've been talking about it's like that's so cool you know when i ride my little e-bike around seattle you know little boys walking by are like what is that right and I, people stop me all the time and it's just an e-bike right that's been around for a couple of years and it's not so it's the storytelling, if you will, of the pictures and of us talking about it and of us like, and of mayors, you know, and the photos of Anadago on our bike, et cetera, are so powerful. And that's the stuff that I'm, you know, wanting to use and really spread the word out. And I also am seeing opportunities to really work with some mayor, some key mayors, right, who have the charisma and the political will who are up for, you know, uh, sharing what they know and sort of being a visible representative of that. So I, I love, my final question was going to be, are you hopeful? And it sounds like you are with regard to cities and climate action. Yeah, I, I'm optimistic. I, you know, there's a ton of knowledge, lots of best practices, lots of great mayors. The big challenge, we've got to act now. Yep, we got to act now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. Go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.